discussion of a Christian home. I told you that our home was a place of order, starting with the order of my father and mother being under the authority of Christ and exercising authority over us children. So we were under their authority. But there were some visible signs of the invisible reality, one of which was punctuality. My father taught strict punctuality. The reason was not just that he was an A-type personality, which none of us ever heard of in those days, but because he explained to us children, when you're late, you are stealing from another person the most precious commodity they have, which is time. Do not do this. So when we came, when we were told that breakfast was to be at 7.10, my father meant really 7, nine and a half. He really did not mean 7.10 and a half. Now this was a rigid rule, not only because my father was teaching us strictness and order, but because he had a commuter train to make, and back in those days the trains ran on the second and there wasn't any flexibility whatsoever. We had to have breakfast together every day because my father believed in having meals together. Of course, he wasn't home at lunchtime, but we had breakfast and dinner together as a family, and we were taught to sit still at the table. Nobody was allowed to get down from the table without permission. And that order went all through the ways in which we were raised. When breakfast was over, then we were herded into the living room, as I told you, and we had family prayers, and that was not flexible either because of that commuter train. So my, my father wanted a leisurely, quiet breakfast, not frantic races for the bag lunches and the school books and his briefcase. It was all done the night before. The school books, the bag lunches were made, and things were exactly where they belonged so that each person could pick up his stuff and leave for school, and my father could find his briefcase. Punctuality means not only that you think of another person's precious commodity, which is time, but also that there has to be a time for everything. It is a matter of order. We must recognize that time is a gift and it is not to be squandered or stolen. We hear people say all the time, I don't have time for this. Well, it's certainly true that we don't have time for a whole lot of things, but very often, when we say that we don't, we don't have time to do the things that God wants us to do, it's because we are squandering time on things that God has not assigned. So we should make it a matter of serious prayer that the Lord will teach us how to use our time. And my husband and I have discovered that we cannot do the work that we do and do very many other things at home, when we're at home. We, we don't do much of anything that most people would say you have to do. We don't have time for television. We don't go out. We don't have a whole lot of meetings. We don't entertain. We would love to entertain. And the Bible says we're supposed to be hospitable. And we try to be hospitable, but there are limits. And we are at home more or less seven days a week when we're not traveling on the road, which is about a third of our time. We travel about a third of the time. We're at home the other two-thirds, but it means work in the morning, work in the afternoon, work in the evening. And we're very grateful. We're not complaining about that at all. There are limits in a Christian home, and parents are responsible before God to establish those limits. You remember when Job was suffering and went through all the 
nonsense that he got from his so-called friends who were accusing him of being at fault, otherwise he would not have suffered as he did, they told him. Then Job finally presents all his arguments to God. We don't hear anything from God for a long time after the friends have said their say and Job has said his say. Then in chapter 38 of that marvelous book, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. And he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Would you love to have a rerun of that event? Would you love to have a tape of the morning stars singing together? Well, I think the day will come when we will hear that. But note the words foundation, dimensions, measuring line, footings, cornerstones. A picture of order in God's universe. And he expects us to live orderly, not disorderly lives. In our home, this meant that there was a place for everything, and everything had to be in its place. It's hard for you to imagine that there was a time when there were no plastics. I can remember that time very well. There was no such thing as scotch tape. Can you imagine life without scotch tape? We had something called mending tape. It also came on a little roll, but it was sort of paper that you had to lick and glue. Well. What we called mending tape had to be in a certain place, in a certain kitchen drawer. And if it was not in that place, we knew it wasn't our parents' fault. It was one of us kids that hadn't put it back in the right place. And so there would have to be a little lesson on a place for everything and everything in its place. And I urge you parents to teach your children orderliness. Probably, if your children are like most 20th century children now, they have too many toys way too many toys. And my eight grandchildren live here in Southern California. And because their father is a pastor, they are inundated with toys, gifts from kind people in the church. What to do with all those toys? I have one suggestion besides quietly giving them away little by little, which is a good idea. Another suggestion would be just to have a certain amount, a limited amount out for each week or each month. If they're going to play Legos, then everything else goes in the closet where they can't reach it. And it's Legos this week, or it's puzzles, or it's a game, whatever. And, you know, they're not going to be nearly as bored as if everything is out all the time, and they're so bored they don't want to play with anything. I've seen this at work. My mother used to put something away, and then if we were sick, she would have something to bring out of the closet that we'd completely forgotten about that we got last Christmas. And little things like that. A place for everything, a time for everything, and everything in its place. And if your children have too many toys so that you don't have a place for everything, that's your fault, not theirs. Teach them to pick up their clothes, hang them up, put them in the closet, put them in the 
clothes basket or whatever, teach them to work. I cannot emphasize strongly enough the importance of teaching your children to work. I hear teenage, mothers of teenagers saying, how do I get my son to work? And I say, well, how old is he? Well, he's 16. Well, you started about 12 years too late. If you're just now trying to teach your son to work, you should have started when he was just a toddler. And don't forget that a three-year-old can learn to work. And he will take his attitudes from his parents. If you talk about, thank God it's Friday, or Blue Monday, and act as if the only thing you live for is leisure time and fun and recreation, your children will pick that attitude up very quickly, and they will learn to hate work. You have to learn to love your work, and if you can't do what you like, learn to like what you do. And that is a lesson that all of us have to learn sooner or later. There are a whole lot of things that we have to do that we don't necessarily love, but we can learn to like what we do. And to thank God for the blessing of work. If you were totally paralyzed, you would give anything in the world for the ability to work with your hands. And they can't do that. I see somebody in a wheelchair back there. I don't know what her limitations are, but obviously she has some that most of us don't have. Thank God for the blessing of mobility and work and teach your children. Now, just some suggestions. If you say, are you kidding? Are you going to teach a three-year-old to work? Yes, I am. I would teach a two-year-old that he can empty waste baskets. He can take the silver basket out of the dishwasher, and if you give him a little stool, he can climb up and put the silverware in the right places in the drawer. He can figure out which spoon goes in which place, and he can put the forks where they belong, the knives where they belong, and that's exactly the same principle as those toys that you have to pay for where you put round things in round holes and triangular things in triangular holes. Why pay money for a plastic toy like that when you can make it useful work? And I think most of you mothers of small children would testify that the smaller the child are is, the more he loves to be involved in something like that. Now, it takes time. It takes much more time for you to teach your little two- or three-year-old to work than it does for you to do the job, obviously. But it's your responsibility. And you will be saving yourself infinite pains for the rest of his life and yours if you teach him early to work. Teach them to pick up their toys, to put away their toys, to hang up their clothes. Teach them early to make their beds. Of course they're not going to make it perfectly. You have to show them. and. Give them the opportunity to struggle. I was taking care of my little niece one time. She was about three years old. And I assumed that she could get herself dressed. But I went in just at the moment when she was struggling very hard to get her dress on. And so I started to help her. And she looked up at me with rather a hurt and a little bit defiant look. And she said, Papa usually lets me struggle. And I thought, Papa is a wise man. Children need struggle. Give them work to do. I saw a television program, a talk show, of parents who were bullied by their teenage children. And as usually happens, those experts on the panel give you a bunch of garbage, and it's the smart people in 
in the audience that come up with the common sense answers. And these experts were giving all kinds of psychological advice as to how to treat a, a teenager that's bullying his parents. And the people in the audience were giving much more practical advice. One woman, for example, said, complained about the fact that she couldn't get her teenage son to take out the garbage. And of course, the psychologists with their great seriousness gave her various methods of how she might work this out. And a woman in the audience stood up and she said, oh, the first woman had said, if I tell my son to take out the garbage, he will stand there and look at me and say, I'll take out the garbage when I want to. And a woman in the audience leaped to her feet and she said, if my son said that to me, he would be wearing that garbage. <laughs> and I said, amen to that. <laughs> but those parents have failed, of course, early on to teach. Now, obedience is the most essential lesson. You're not going to have any success teaching your 16-year-old son to take out the garbage if he didn't learn obedience much earlier than that. How do you teach and when do you teach a child to obey? The book, which I think I mentioned earlier, The Shaping of a Christian Family, is the story of the home in which I grew up. I guess I didn't mention that book, but it opens up with an article written by my mother. She was in her late 70s when Moody Monthly Magazine <coughs> asked her to write an article about training children. And she did. It was, as far as I can remember, the only thing she ever wrote for publication. And little did she imagine that I would one day put it in a book. But it's, I felt it was a great introduction to the kind of a home that I came from because it was my mother's first severe test of her authority with her first child, my older brother, Phil. And he was in his high chair and he wanted to get down and he had not finished his milk. And my mother said, yes, Phil, you may get down when you finish your milk. And he sat there, and he grumped, and he moaned, and pouted. And after a while, he said, want to get down. My mother said, yes, Phil, you may get down when you finish your milk. And she said it took a few times for her to realize that this was a very crucial lesson. And she was going to have to stick with this. She had no idea how long this was going to go on. And every few minutes, Phil would mutter, want to get down. And she would repeat, you may get down when you finish your milk. She realized that this was the crucial point at which either he would recognize her authority or he wouldn't. And she had to stick with it. And it was a real nuisance and it went on for something more than an hour, I think maybe close to two hours. And he was, my mother was saved from just total collapse by the sound of the dog cart that brought the milk. My mother, my parents were missionaries in Belgium and they lived on a cobblestone street and the milk was delivered to the homes every day by a dog cart, these huge Belgian Bouvier dogs, two dogs pulled this cart. And Phil loved to go out and see those dogs and to see the milkman. So when he heard the cart rumbling down over the cobblestones, down went the milk in two seconds. And of course he got down from the high chair. But mother won. And we knew that mother and daddy were always going to win. It was no good our standing up against them. 
And I emphasize again, God has given you authority over those children, and God is going to hold you responsible for teaching obedience. Because if they don't obey their parents, how are they going to obey the school teachers and the civil authorities and God? When do you teach obedience? My mother started when my brother was two. That was the first crucial test. Now, I would say you need to start before that. I'm sure mother started before that. But that was the worst test and the longest. The point at which I would say is the latest when you should start trying to train obedience is when the child begins to crawl. Because when he begins to crawl, he's going to get into things. He can pull the tablecloth off the table with all the dishes on it. He can get the books out of the bookcase. He can take whatever's on the coffee table. Whatever he can reach, he's going to reach, and he's going to pull things down and break things, get into things. When Jim and I lived in the jungle, Valerie was born there, and we had very few valuable things, but the most precious things to us were our books. And we did not want that child tearing up books. So when she began to crawl, we were sitting in the living room one day, and she headed for the bookcase with a very knowing and mischievous look in her eye. And she was looking over her shoulder every once in a while at her parents and headed for the bookcase. And her father said to her, Valerie, don't touch those books. Now this is an eight-month-old child. She doesn't talk, but she understands every word when it comes from that tone of voice. And she continued to crawl with that same defiant and mischievous look in her eye, and before we could do anything about it, she grabbed a book, opened it up, and tore a page. This lightning speed. Now we knew that she had understood what we said. Children are way ahead of you in understanding. And so she got a spanking. The one and only spanking that I can remember she ever got from her father because he died just a month or two later. But you know, the next day, we were sitting again in the living room, and the next day she headed again for that bookcase, looking at us with that completely comprehending look, as if, well, they didn't want me to touch him yesterday, but maybe I can get away with it today. Headed for the bookcase. But all Jim said that time was, Valerie, no. And she just turned around and crawled away as if she never had any intention whatsoever <laughs> of touching those books. But you know what? She never once pulled a book out of the bookcase again. What is the lesson for all of us here? We started early. You will save yourself infinite pains if you teach your little children what the word no means. Teach them what no means. Teach them what come means. My friend Robin went to my mother many years ago for advice about raising her children. She had one little boy. And my mother sort of had young women beating a path to her door after she had raised her own children, and she began to be a spiritual mother to many younger women. And Robin was one of those, and Robin just fairly recently told me this story. I hadn't heard this. She said, you know, I went to get advice from your mother many times, and she said, one day when I was sitting there, I had my son sitting on my lap. He was 18 months old or something, and he was pulling my glasses off. I guess he was less than 18 months old, more like under a year. And while we were talking, he kept pulling my glasses, and I kept putting them back on and taking them away from him, and he was pulling them off. And she said, finally, your mother said to me, Robin, didn't you know that you can teach him not to touch your glasses?
And Robin said to me, I didn't know that. I had no idea that I could teach a child less than a year old to be obedient. He says, your mother taught me the most important lesson of my life. And Robin has raised five very fine children in a very disciplined home. But there are four steps, very simple steps, with which I want to help young parents as much as I can. And the first one is that you speak the child's name. You must not be unfair to your child by just shouting out an order when he's not paying any attention. Speak his name in a calm, ordinary tone of voice. And that's what Jim did. He said, Valerie, and he got her attention. She turned around and looked at him. He nailed her with his eyes and he said, no. When she disobeyed what she knew, she was, and she did what she knew she was not to do, she got a spanking. And he gave her one word command, no, and he said it in a normal tone of voice. Now, I put in that spanking bit sort of out of order. Let me repeat four simple things. Number one, speak the name. Number two, establish eye contact. Number three, issue a command in a calm, ordinary, normal, adult tone of voice. Do not teach your children baby talk. That's where children learn it. They learn it from silly adults. Just talk in a normal tone of voice to your child. Don't use a special voice or a little high squeaky voice just because he has a high squeaky voice. And issue the command once. Let the child know from the very, let the child know from the very beginning that you're serious about what you say and that will establish a foundation on which he will, on which he will learn to obey God. Those four things, they are so simple. Now I'll give you an illustration of how well this works. I was invited by a young couple who had one small child. These people had come from non-functional families, dysfunctional families. They didn't have clue number one how to raise that child. And they had the grace to ask me, an old woman, for some help. And I recommend that you ask older people for some help, people who have had some experience. A lot of times old people say to me, well, I'd love to help these younger parents, but they don't, want to, they don't want our advice. Well, there are a lot that do. So I'm dishing some out tonight, and I hope there's some with ears to hear. But I told this couple I'd be glad to have dinner with them. They wanted to take me to a restaurant and have dinner so we could talk about these things. And to my dismay, they arrived at the restaurant with this child. I was hoping they would leave him at home. Because it's my experience that very often there's no possibility of any adult conversation if there's an unruly child in, our, in the presence of the adults. Then my heart sank again because I overheard the, the wife say to her husband, oh, don't tell me they don't have one of those high chairs with a tray on it. It's one of those high chairs that sits right at the table. He's going to be all over the table. Well, she was right. As soon as he sat down, they put him at the end of the table. They put me on his left and they put his mother on the right and the father was down here and there was somebody else on my left. And the little boy didn't take very long before he was bored and so he reaches across his mother reaches across for his mother's fork and he takes the fork and his mother 
is engaged in conversation and without saying anything to the child, without even looking at him, she takes the fork out of his hand and puts it down. And he reaches again for the fork and she takes it out of his hand and she puts it down, rolling her eyes, shrugging her shoulders, you know, this is the way kids are, what can you do about it? And this went on for a while and then he got bored with the fork and so he reached across the plate and he got the knife and she took it out of his hand. Not once did she say anything, not, not once did she look him in the eye and speak his name, she just went through this routine over and over again. And he reaches for the spoon. Then he reaches for the water glass. Finally, she calls the waitress over. She says, oh, could you bring a glass of milk and some crackers for this kid? She said, we're just going crazy. He's so restless until the food comes. So, of course, they brought the crackers and the milk. And how long does that keep the child occupied? Well, maybe about two or three minutes. And then... He, re he, he just began moving his hand rather slowly toward my spoon. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this child had never seen me before in his life. He didn't know what he was up against. <laughs> but I, to me, this is a perfect illustration of how smart these children are. This baby recognized that the people on this side didn't have any authority. But all I did when he reached for my spoon was to lower my head enough so that I looked him straight in the eye and I said, Jeremy, no. And Jeremy just went like this. <laughs> he understood exactly. And he understood the distinction between the people on this side of the table and whoever this old lady was that he'd never seen before tone of voice, a look in the eye. I spoke his name. And for the rest of that meal, that child did not once reach for anything on my side of the table, but we continued having to go through all this routine on the other side. I was hoping against hope that the parents would be smart enough to see what had happened. I don't think they got the message. But toward the very end of the meal, this child, just like Valerie, thought, well, she didn't want it happen to happen then, but maybe I can get away with it this time. Once again, he just started to move his hand very, very cautiously, watching me out of the corner of his eye toward my spoon. This time, all I did was look at him. And again, he pulled his hand away. Does that tell you something? Children understand a voice of authority. My mother claimed that the newborn infant understands who's in charge by the touch of the hand on that baby's back, just the calm, comforting, quiet, warm touch of the mother's hand, and by the voice. They understand a voice of calm, loving control. Now, when it comes to a deliberate disobedience, such as Valerie's tearing that book, she understood that she was not to touch those books. And she did it, and she got a spanking. This morning I was speaking, where was I, Escondido this morning, and one of the questions that came to me was, do you think that spanking is the only method? Is it a good method for small children? No, it certainly isn't the only method of punishment, but I do think it is by far the best method for a very small child because it's absurd to try to reason with a small child. They don't understand your reasons, and they're not interested in them anyway. But they do understand pain. 
And a spanking is not child abuse. We live in, a, in an era when everybody gets so twitchy and scared to death because we're talking about child abuse. No, we're not. We're not talking about child abuse. We're talking about a measure of pain inflicted on a disobedient child and make sure that the child has understood that he is not to do this. It would be very unfair to spank him the first time, but it's up to you to anticipate the naughty things and to explain you're not to touch that, you're not to do this, and when I say come, you are to come. It's a measure of pain inflicted by a parent who is in control of himself, and it is a measure inflicted on a disobedient child. Now, my mother had an 18-inch switch from the backyard, just a little switch from the bush, and that will not inflict any serious damage. It's not going to do any harm to the child, but it sure does sting bare legs. And she used that little switch when we were disobedient. And she kept one of those over the door in every room of the house. <laughs> so we knew that that switch was there. Now, because she started early, by the time we were crawling, that switch came into play. It hardly ever got used. I have talked about this home in which I grew up, and one man came up to me one time after I'd talked about it, and he said, boy, am I glad I'm not your brother. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, oh, so I could never survive that kind of rigid discipline that you had in your home. Well, I had neglected to say how much fun we had in our home and how much laughter and how much uh, good times we had. And a great deal of the peace and the order was because our parents started early enough. And when children learn at the age of eight months that no means no and come means come, it greatly simplifies life for the child and for the parents. So it wasn't very often that my mother actually had to get that switch down. Most of the time, all she had to do was issue the command, and if we didn't jump right away, her eyes went to the top of the door, and we were galvanized into action. So I say, I think it's a good plan. It's not merely Elizabeth Elliot opinion. The Bible speaks very clearly of the use of a rod. And it says that the father who does not discipline his son hates him. And that's a very serious charge. And we have a number of biblical examples. Eli, for example, did not discipline his sons. And they turned out to be miserable losers. And it was explained that Eli had never asked his sons why they acted the way they did. He didn't want to raise a question. He didn't want to make them feel bad. He didn't want to damage their little self-images. And that's the outcome. Our authority over our children is God-assigned, God-given. And it brings peace in the home. My mother used to say about my brother Dave, who was the most mischievous of my four brothers, that he would tune up for a spanking. It was just as though he would do little naughty things, not bad enough to get a spanking for, but just little irritating naughty things for several days in a row. And mother would say to him, Dave, you are tuning up for spanking. And when he finally did something that deserved a spanking, he got it. And she said it was wonderful. It was just like the sunshine after the rain. She said it just cleared the atmosphere of the whole house. 
when Davy had finally gotten the spanking that he deserved. Now, of course, as we grew up, there were other punishments, if they were necessary, depriving us of dessert, depriving us of some pleasure that we enjoyed. The worst thing to me was having to be sent to bed earlier than my bedtime. And one time my mother had made my brother Dave sit on a chair in his room, told him that he had to sit there for X number of minutes or so, I don't remember what they were. And so she left him in the room and shut the door. Well, she came back when the time was up, she opened the door, and Dave was nowhere to be seen, nor was the chair. <laughs> they weren't in the room. Now, Mother said there wasn't any way that he could have come out of that room without her seeing him. She discovered that, well, I guess the phone rang, and a neighbor called up to say, did you know that your son is sitting on the porch roof in a chair? And he climbed out of the window and was sitting, still being very obedient, <laughs> sitting on the chair where he was told to stay. Well, that just gives you an idea of some of the uh, originality of children. Now, the most important principle of the Christian home, we've talked about love as being the central law, the law of a Christian home. But the principle of the cross is depicted in the way we behave toward each other. And the principle of the cross is my life for yours. This was what Jesus was telling us when he went to the cross. My life for yours. And he says, if you want to be my disciple, you must take, you must give up your right to yourself and take up the cross and follow me. It does not come naturally to any of us to give up our right to ourselves. And can you imagine trying to sell that idea in the 1990s? We are constantly bombarded with it's your life, it's your body, you can do anything you want with it, do your own thing, don't let anybody else tell you what to do, if it feels good, do it. McDonald's says, have it your way. We're inundated, insistently, constantly, inescapably, with this loud message of selfishness. So how can we Christian parents teach our children the principle of the cross? We have to start very small with very small things. You teach a small child to share his toys. Now, in order to do that, he has to start doing the three principles of discipleship. Now, of course, you're not going to talk about the three principles of discipleship to a two-year-old, but you will insist that he will let, he must share his little dump truck with his baby brother up to a point. Now, it doesn't mean that all the toys that the three or four-year-old has have to be given to the one or two-year-old. You have to be discerning about those, but you have to teach the principle. At the table, when you want some butter, you pass the butter to your daddy first, or to your mother first, or to your brother or sister first. The principle of the cross is Give up your right to yourself. Take up the cross, which is, well, in the simplest forms, 
just a small nuisance. To give up my right to myself and start taking up the cross begins in very small ways. I have a husband who is a southern gentleman, and it took him a long time to win me because my mind was completely closed to a third marriage. But one of the things that always impressed me about Lars was that he had a servant heart. And he always, to this day, opens the car door for me. He actually pushes my chair in at the table when we don't have any company. He's not showing off. It's my life for yours. Now, it is a nuisance, gentlemen, and we women recognize this. If it's pouring rain, it's a terrible nuisance for you to have to get out of the car in the pouring rain, run around to the other side, put up an umbrella, help your wife into the store or the music hall, wherever it is you're going. You're giving up your right to yourself. And the little child wants to grab the cookies first, and you teach him, my life for yours, this principle. In the measure in which he can understand it, courtesy, as Emerson said, is a lot of petty sacrifices. Courtesy is petty sacrifice. Small ways of saying my life for yours, of thinking about the other person. What can I do to make that person comfortable? What can I do to make them happy? What can we do for Mama, who works so hard for us? I had a letter from a mother, believe it or not, who said, I have three daughters and one son. I've taught my daughters to wash dishes. My son doesn't think that he ought to have to wash dishes because he's a boy. Well, she said, I think he should learn to wash dishes, but I can't think of a good reason. Please tell me what a good reason is. And so, of course, I wrote and said, well, just tell him because he's a member of this family. We're here to serve each other. Where else are you going to learn servanthood? Remind him, you cook the meal. He can wash the dishes. Well, terribly simple, but it hadn't occurred to her that this has anything to do with the rule of heaven, which is charity. The rule of heaven, C.S. Lewis said, is thy will be done. The rule of hell is the opposite. My will be done. I'm going to do my own thing. So every day, in every way, in the grocery store, in church, in the way you drive, are you signaling by the, your behavior, it's my life for yours. And if a guy cuts you off on the freeway, what's your response to that? The same to you, buddy, or the peace of the Lord be with you. Little things. The child doesn't want to pick up his to toys. He wants to play with those toys tomorrow morning, so why can't he just leave them on the living room floor? Well, because it's a nuisance for other people. We don't want to look at the toys. You have to think about us. Sometimes young parents fail to see that they are going to be answerable to God for teaching their children to be servants. I've talked to young mothers who believe that they their job is to serve their children. Of course it is. But at the same time, as the child grows, you have to teach the child to serve you. You have to refuse to do the thing in order that the child learn to do it for himself. An old friend of mine, a woman who never was married, but a very wise and wonderful old lady, who died in her 90s. She said, the measure of your love 
is the measure in which you are willing to be inconvenienced. The measure of your love is the measure to which you are willing to be inconvenienced. And to live in a family is to suffer all kinds of inconveniences. And the bigger the family, the more the opportunities for learning unselfishness. And I see that in big families much more than I see it in small families, where there are only one or two children, there's a whole lot more scope for selfishness. You just simply can't get away with it, the bigger the family is. But whatever number of children God gives you, you will have to answer to him for the ways in which you have trained them. The measure of your love is the measure in which you are willing to be inconvenienced. Obedience involves humility. We are willing to do things which are not our thing. And the great scriptural example of that for all time is that our Lord and Master got down on his knees and washed the disciples' feet, showing us that this is the great lesson of my life for yours. Now it says in that chapter, John 13, that Jesus, in order to show the full extent of his love, took a towel and a basin and washed the disciples' feet. Now, wouldn't you think that going to the cross would be sufficient proof of the full extent of his love? I think one reason Jesus also did this amazing thing was because he knew that most of us were never going to be crucified, literally. Some of the disciples, according to tradition, perhaps were. That's a dramatic sacrifice. But Jesus was showing them that there are some humble, ordinary, daily, everyday acts of unselfishness and courtesy, which we can practice. We're not going to be crucified, but God is going to give us the opportunity to be a humble servant. And he said, if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you must wash one another's feet. Now, we don't live in a culture in which foot washing is necessary. But I think Jesus was saying, the dirtiest job, the humblest job, the lowest job in an Eastern household was the one of foot washing. You be the kind of person in your church who's willing to do the job for which you will never be thanked. You be the kind of person in your neighborhood on whom people want to call because they know you'll do it. A Christian home is founded on love, order, obedience, authority, and courtesy.